Hello, this is Stephanie. And this is Brian. Welcome to the making and the remaking of a codependent mind. We're back with what has now become episode four of a little mini series within a series about sex. Sex and codependency. Yeah, sex as it relates to codependency and trauma, which is basically the core of this entire podcast. But we found it extremely helpful to separate out the subject of sex, mostly because we avoided it, as we said in the first episode of this little mini series. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, probably. This will be a little more of a upbeat episode, though, because it's going to review the sexual healing that has occurred in your life over the last few years. Yeah, so how that healing went along, tracked along with the healing of this, the codependency in general but how also a lot of it remained unhealed because I sort of pretty much refused or was just too afraid to think about the subject of sex specifically. Where we left you last episode, you were not in a particularly good place. No, I was not in a good place in a lot of ways, obviously. But um, yeah, sexually, I think I was even further behind than I was from any of my progress as far as you know, just self-awareness, just because I never really even attempted to, to get self-awareness about my sexuality. You know, there were times where I at least attempted to get, tried to figure out what was going on with me, but not with that. I just was always too afraid. The shame that I was carrying throughout my entire life, I was just too afraid of it. So, I mean, by the time the J relationship ended, around the time I met you, I was carrying all of that shame, plus these new layers of shame that were related to the sexual trauma that I picked up from my real world experiences. And my real world experiences of sex confirmed all of my fears and sort of compounded them. And so I was kind of in this place of, first of all, just behaving completely codependently when it came to my sexuality. So I was behaving codependently in general across the board, but the way it worked with the sexuality was similar in that I was not running off a desire. So when you say that you were behaving codependently, you weren't motivated by your own sexual desires or, or wants. No. You were motivated to try to manage the other person's experience and to people please and to caretake within the context of the sexual relationship as well. Yeah. So the same goals being to keep myself safe. So I'm not trying, I'm not seeking pleasure. I'm not getting pleasure. This was a miserable experience. I was not enjoying the sexual experience across the board, not just with those people, but just in general, I didn't want to think about sex. I didn't like the subject coming up on my head. So even masturbation was not pleasurable yeah, that was at that off point. The table, basically, yeah, it just was. It, it did. I didn't have a good sexual experience, so it was really starting to to eat at me. Part of the codependency infection of the sexuality. My main motivation was to just escape shame and to to keep myself safe, rather than to experience pleasurable life. And by keeping yourself safe, because there wasn't overt physical violence or coercion, but there was the fear that came with potentially disappointing these people and the emotional violence that could follow if they were disappointed and angry or angry with you. Yeah. And we talked about in the J relationship, there was really no communication about sex, but the fact that there was abuse in that relationship and I was afraid of this person and there was the power imbalance. It just felt the same. It didn't have to be a topic. It was just a, an abusive relationship. It felt like it touched everything in the relationship. So the f fear was in the sexual realm as well, as if that if you didn't perform sexually as she expected you to perform and react to her sexually as you, she expected you and felt entitled to for you to react, that you would be treated the way that she treated you in other ways, mm -hmm. belittling you, insulting you, yelling at you, shaming you. So that's the other big 
overarching thing, this word that we've said a few times throughout these first few episodes, which I've come to find being a word that applies to codependency in general really well, is performance. So I was thinking I was very performance-oriented when it came to sex, but that's what codependency is. I was performing for these people to try to get them to treat me better. Basically. Right, so people-pleasing is a performance, and we, we've talked about how the mechanisms of people-pleasing work in that you use what you have available to you. Mm-hmm. So you use your own internal resources, whether they're intellectual resources or emotional resources, you're a caring person, you're a smart person, you're a funny person, you're an X kind of person. You use those those traits and those internal resources as well as external resources in order to please the people around you rather than in order to give yourself a happy and fulfilling life. So this was true of sex as well. It became a way to please them rather than a way to please yourself. Except that for me, part of the trauma was that unlike other areas where I managed to feel as though I was appeasing them and pleasing them in many ways, I didn't feel that way sexually. I felt very inadequate. My physical performance, the the fact that it happened less and less and not at all, blaming all of that on myself. And then so that one of the also one of the reasons I kind of just thought of sex separately is this thing that I was just terrible at and but also at the same time not thinking about my own desire at all along with that. So it was just I'm terrible at this. These people don't find me desirable, not realize I didn't find them desirable. So it's this habit of that seeking validation. I needed somehow to be validated that, oh no, you're you're okay. You're you're good after all. And I, I wasn't getting that that's where my techniques would come in so like we talked about near the end of jay in this open relationship period shame venting to to everyone starting increasingly starting to do that my techniques of using resentment as being really my only tool to almost survive the jay relationship is just resent her for everything to relieve the shame because you're putting all this effort into this performance which you're not getting any pleasure out of yeah and then you're not getting any positive feedback from as well right and then I'm shame venting, but then the shame venting isn't really working because if I go too far with it, then someone says, well, that doesn't sound good and gives any advice at all that I don't want to take is too much advice. So it's walking this very thin line. So it sounds like a pretty terrible situation that you were yeah. in, um, but you're not in that anymore. Yes. And it's amazing how I was able to kind of just, despite all that and not having any knowledge of that, was able to slowly get out of it anyway. And we talked about in in the first episode where we started talking about sex that we had a very strong sexual connection and very good sexual chemistry from the get-go and that that aspect of our relationship has been an important part of our relationship so why don't we talk a little bit about what we think enabled that to be the case how is it that even though sex had been such a fraught experience for you most of your life and that you were emerging from years and years of even more direct sexually traumatic experiences. What was it about our connection and our sexual relationship that made it a healing relationship, a relationship, a sexual relationship in which you could heal? Well, first of all, it was unconscious. I'll get that out of the way right off the bat where I didn't know enough about myself at all sexually that I I was at risk all the time. Yes, for sure. I mean, everything we're talking about now is things that we've... Yes, this is hindsight. This is hindsight and and analysis of what was happening. So what we came to find throughout all these discussions was that there were three elements that were present right from the beginning of our experience that were not there at all in my other experiences. And these are the elements and components that we think 
made this a sexually healing relationship for you. All three of them had to be in place, but we'll kind of go through them one by one, starting with safety. Yes. I felt safe with you right from the beginning. This is not something that I was able to consciously recognize, as I said, only because I didn't recognize that I was unsafe with my other... I didn't admit to it. You felt safe, which is important, but you were safe, <laughs> mm-hmm, right. which is also very important because... yeah. I mean, one thing that narcissists do is move things along very, very quickly. Love bombing is part of that. There's other techniques that they use. You mentioned that both of your narcissistic partners dangled sex, brought up sex in the first conversation that they ever had with you. So you don't really get the opportunity to find out if they're safe people or not. Mm -hmm. Right. And it is possible that the people that you were seeing during the open period that that you had some not satisfying borderline traumatic sexual experiences with it's possible Mm. they were safe people but you didn't Mm. really give yourself the opportunity to find that out about them either there was very much a rush into a sexual relationship yes 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 they were all very rushed yes in very similar ways i mean there's nothing wrong with jumping into bed with someone i don't i'm Mm. not trying to moralize about it but if you're struggling with codependent habits and past trauma and sexual trauma it's probably worthwhile to spend some time to get to know someone to figure out if they're a safe person because you were not in a position to keep yourself safe sexually yeah so you really needed the other person to be a safe person i mean ideally everyone would be a safe person for for each other but that's not the case and one thing about our relationship is it didn't progress to sex very quickly and it also it didn't go right into love bombing it was a pretty natural meeting followed by periods of of not talking it was organic and i i felt it gave me some agency because you didn't just jump right in. So I, I kind of assumed almost you would. that I was so used to that process. Mm-hmm. And I was passive and, and kind of an anxious person. But I really wanted to pursue things with you because of that first meeting. But I would just kind of do these little plant the seeds and then assume that you would just go, oh, he's okay, he's interested. All right, here we go. Now we're, now we're just going to communicate nonstop and I'm going to make all the moves. Like, not that I wanted that, but it was just kind of what I expected. But that's not what happened. I'm really fortunate that that's not what happened. Right. So it was kind of months between when we met and saw each other socially until we, you know, went out on what would be an official date. Mm-hmm. And then it was considerable time. Uh, weeks later that we kind of initiated a more sexual relationship so there was lots of time for you even though you weren't doing this consciously but you to figure out that I was a safe person that you could have interactions with me that didn't lead to shame or performance anxiety or expectations of you that you didn't know if you could meet yeah I mean it didn't mean that that my shame or trauma may have not been triggered here and there in other ways, just because that's kind of how it works, but it wasn't being triggered by abuse. And I do kind of feel as though my body can tell the difference, at least somewhat that, you know, obviously you're not sitting there mocking me or insulting me or belittling me. I mean, that's pretty obvious, although still, I'm not thinking about that consciously, but I'm, I'm kind of the reverse internalizing, internalizing the fact that you're not doing that, that this is safe exchange. And an exciting exchange on top of that. So it was it was a safe relationship. 
I mean, no relationship is 100% safe, right? That's yeah, always, right. <laughs> people... That's where vulnerability comes in. Exactly. Refer to that episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but in general, there was a feeling of safety. I felt you were a safe person. You felt I was a safe person. So there was a certain comfort level about being sexually vulnerable with each other by the time we got to that to that stage. So yeah, the next one, very big one that I didn't have in previous relationships was the feeling of being desired. So I felt and trusted that you had desire for me as this thing was taking off. And especially once we got to the physical aspects of the relationship, you were good at communicating that. And it it felt real to me. The love bombing, say, that I got, even at the time, even when I was distracted and swept up in this whole rush to, to do things, there was still a piece of me that I can remember now when I do forensically go back that just didn't trust it. It didn't feel legitimate somehow. And this felt legitimate. I could feel this coming from you well and the love bombing happened alongside of increasingly abusive language so they would both do that they would both do you're so good you're so handsome i can't believe we met you know you're the one alongside of these conditions though yeah about your behavior and your performance so they would also take that take those compliments away Mm -hmm. very quickly yeah when i was thinking about trauma bonding we talked about how the trauma bonding started immediately with those relationships but something I also realized was that the swings, you know, of course, what we talk about in trauma bonding is, is the intermittent abuse. And eventually it kind of gets to a point where it's either you're being abused or you're getting a dopamine release of the relief of not being abused. So that's the swing more or less. Okay, now we're in a calm moment. I'm going to capitalize on this calm moment. In the beginning of those relationships with the love bombing and the obsessive Uh, complimenting and things that they were doing, the swing was bigger. So it wasn't just going from being abused one moment to not being abused and feeling a relief that it wasn't being, it was going from being abused to being praised. So it was actually a larger swing and it was like even more destabilizing and confusing. And it gave the abuse that much more power too. Right, because at one point they're saying, oh, you're so sexy, I'm so into you. And the next point, they're like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Why, are you why are you behaving this way? So you're desperate to get back to that yes. place where you're this kind of sexy person. So yeah, when it came to sex with both of them, it felt very transactional and, and very where they wanted it a certain way. And the motivation coming from them seemed to be to make them feel a certain way rather than wanting me. I could definitely tell there was not, it wasn't coming from a place of, oh, I, I'm really... I really desire you. I I want to have sex. It's make me feel a certain way. (laughs) Or I just want to have a sexual experience and I want you to deliver it to me. It's not about wanting to have the sexual experience with you. Right, right. Yes. It's wanting you to provide that for me. And, you know, there's quite a bit of transactional sex in in the world. And and again, Mm -hmm. we're not kind of moralizing that that's wrong. I mean, sometimes you can have, I mean, people pay for sex. Yeah. People provide sex for pay. But that's probably not a sexual experience that's going to be a healing sexual experience for most people struggling with codependency. That would not have been a healing sexual experience for you. I mean, in fact, you talked about your attempt to engage in more directly transactional sex with with a sex worker in Vegas and and it just adding to your shame. Right. Well, and and the the whole reason for that was a similar thing. I just, it was a means to an end or something. It was, it was, uh, the point was to get it out of the way, you know, not like, oh boy, I can't, this is going to be an amazing, pleasurable experience. So for, with us, what you're saying is that you felt my desire is legitimate, which it was, I will say. (laughs) 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 What I felt was a desire to have sex with you. Mm -hmm. That I wanted that whole 
experience with you as a, as a person. Yeah. And you were really good at communicating, as I said, like it, it just because of who you were and your level of self-awareness and sexual self-awareness that came through even to someone like me that had all of these kind of walls set up to protect myself um, and to ignore emotional signals. I still felt it. So we had safety. We had a desire for you as a person, being seen as a person, being seen as a sexually desirable person. And then the third component, even though all three are really necessary, we think, to have provided this healing experience for Mm -hmm. you, the third component is perhaps maybe the most critical one. Yes. The third one being I had desire. So when we were talking about transactional sex, it was Mm -hmm. transactional for your narcissistic partners, what they were looking for was kind of narcissistic supply. Someone sees me as yes. sexy and desirable. Someone wants me. But that was also somewhat true of you. Yes. You were e- exchanging your sexual labor to relieve your own shame or fear. Yes. I think relieve is really the word that stands out to me the most. I, I was just trying to relieve something. All the way back to the beginning of our, as I said, this kind of phrase popping through my head of, of, of I, oh, I can't believe this is happening to me. You know, just this. When I go back and forensically look at all this stuff, there was never, I can't find a moment where I said, oh, I can't wait to get together with R again to have sex. I, I just, I'm just so into her. I'm just so, I just, I feel so drawn to her. There wasn't that. It was I was drawn to something. So like when I talked about the this existential need to get better at kissing because she insulted my kissing, not because I couldn't wait to kiss her again. So it was this, it was the same thing with sex. It just I needed to prove myself, especially when it got to these points where you know it became this major performance issue where R was explicit about that that yeah. you needed to prove yourself. Right. So so then it just dug that hole deeper and deeper and deeper and I. And I but when it came to us, and right from the beginning, I was propelled by desire. Once again, I had to do all this stuff forensically, but I was able to go back and just think of what my motivation was every time I saw you, every time I wanted to reach out to you, or try to plant seeds to make you ask me out, or whatever <laughs> I did, you know, however I did it. The motivation was you. I remember just picturing you, or when I would see you, how that felt. And then especially once the sex started, even though I had these distractions, you know, it's understandable that I would have a lot of distractions from the sexual trauma and this performance anxiety and stuff like that. And some of those things became too conscious at at various times. But there was this core of desire that was there. And all three of these things were there, even though it was below the surface, like so many of the other things were. So this led us to talking about the difference between needs, wants, and desires, and what those feel like, and how so how they played into previous sexual experiences, and 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 then played into ours. So and I I was using the example of we're at a, say we're at a movie theater, and you asked me if I want some popcorn, and want is a real want is the, I think the the right choice there. Yeah, because I don't need popcorn. I don't need it nutritionally. I don't, I'm usually not hungry. You know, there's no yeah. need that that's satisfying, and I don't really desire it. Desire seemed to have this kind of extra motivational weight, such that I wouldn't actually go up and leave the movie theater and walk down and go buy some for myself. But you asked me if I want some. I'm like, yeah, I want some. You bring it to me. Yeah. I'm going to eat it and I'm going to enjoy it. It's going to add some pleasure to my experience. Yeah. So being able to kind of distinguish between these different levels of 
like what your body is telling you. Yeah. Is it telling you need it? Is it telling you, oh, you kind of want it? Or is it, is it what you're feeling desire? That was difficult for you to navigate yes. the difference between those feelings. Well, mostly because of my emotional immaturity and my inability to separate my emotions and to stick with them for very long because I was afraid of where any of them would lead when I did spend any time consciously thinking about. Because often even pleasurable things like desire led me down a path of shame because I was afraid it would be taken away or it wasn't somehow I was going to screw it up or something. Our discussions kind of reminded me of Maslow's Pyramid of Needs. You mm -hmm. remember that? Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, you ha we have to meet the basic needs first and then, then you can kind of move up. And I think the basic ones are just the physiological ones, you mm -hmm. know, hunger, rest. But just one level up from that is the safety need. Ah, yeah, right. Is this need to feel secure and safe and the idea if that's violated as it was for you in childhood, you can become just stuck at that level. Mm -hmm. In the need level. It, it, well, they're, yeah, I mean, they're all kind of needs, right? Mm -hmm. But this, this need for safety and security, you can't move up the pyramid to what he calls the higher level needs. And I guess what we're calling into the desire mm -hmm. portion, right? So th that need for safety is kind of that feeling like, you're being chased by a wolf. <laughs> uh -huh. You're going to run really fast if you're being chased by a wolf. Whereas if, say, you're chasing a wolf because you want to eat it, although I don't think you want to eat a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, so maybe you're like, you're chasing Tw Taylor Swift concert tickets. Right? <laughs> you're going to run fast. You really desire those Taylor Swift concert tickets, but you're not going to run as fast as if you're being chased by a wolf that wants to eat you. I mean, that's just yes. how it goes, right? And right. in fact, if you see Taylor Swift concert tickets on the ground if you're being chased by a wolf you're running right by those <laughs> that's true like you can't you can't work and satisfying your desires you can't even be distracted by them as you're saying it's almost mm -hmm. like you didn't you couldn't be distracted by desire yeah because you were so focused on getting the safety need met yeah i never got to a point where so it's not even even saying i denied myself to not desires is kind of going too far really mm -hmm. it's just like i never got to a point where it even became an option really because i was perpetually stuck in this closed loop system of trying to survive and so, managing the fear and shame and those were yeah. the, those were the dominant emotions like those were the wolves that were chasing you and you didn't have time or attention or confidence to to look anywhere else mm -hmm. except straight ahead of you running for your life yeah so everything i did in that the relationship came from these codependent behaviors which i developed to keep myself safe at the very beginning of life with with a friend g and with my dad because that did work at the time. I had no idea what any of that meant, mm -hmm. obviously, but somehow this worked. And now I'm just on the lookout for these same threats. And if any of these same threats come up, okay, here we go. This, this is familiar. I, I'm going to do this same thing. But then the problem is that it works to some extent in that it does keep me safe with someone that I don't need to be kept safe with anymore. So now I'm applying this sexually too. And really what it comes down to is rather than there being a desire, there's a need. I already felt kind of as though I had a need for sex because of my shame of not having it. So anytime I wasn't having it, I felt shame, a loser or whatever it was for not having sex. And then in those relationships, it was kind of a similar motivation. This needs to be happening. It's my fault. It's not happening. It was easier for me to, to look at it that way too, that it was my fault rather than it's someone else's fault other than the moments of resentment would help me here and there to kind of balance it out a little bit in my in my head but for the most part it was my fault 
And even with these women that during the open period you try to have sexual experiences with, it was a performance-based need. I, I need mm-hmm. to be good at this. I need to demonstrate that I can do this. There wasn't this connection to your own desire. Yeah. And this is one of the terrible things that trauma does, especially when it happens in childhood, is disconnecting you, yourself from your emotions, which is really disconnecting you from you. Your emotions had to be responsive and reactive to the person around you, to the people around you. You didn't feel that sense of safety that allowed you to look at your own emotions and to work towards your own goals. Like You couldn't display anger because that would put you in a threatening situation. You couldn't display disappointment because then you would have, again, threat directed at you. You weren't confident to display your own sense of pleasure or desire because that could be, bring threat to you. You had to suppress all of those emotions. Yeah. So this became a relationship in which you could reconnect that part of yourself. You could have an experience that is about desire and it could be based on your desire. So even though it was a habit for me, very deep into our relationship of still avoiding my emotions because it was just a reflexive thing. I still didn't really understand them and I didn't understand the importance of them either. So it created problems and it was in, and it led to us doing all this work because you, you, you couldn't trust that I was being authentic a lot of times. And, and so this conversation about need versus want versus desire, it was a sticking point for us for a long time as far as like, what did you see in R or J? What did motivate you to want to have sex? You talk about, you keep talking about shame venting, basically about the sexlessness of the relationship with J and all this and in saying it in this, in a way as if I wanted it, as if I wanted it just like I wanted it with you. And I couldn't answer that. I had, I struggled really hard to answer with that because I couldn't, I didn't think about this whole topic in between those conversations. So we'd have these conversations that you had to bring up every single time and I would get flooded with shame and I would do my best to sit with it because I was already doing that. Um, especially, you know, like I said, deep into this process, still avoiding the topic of, of sex. So I understood trauma at that point and I understood shame, but I still didn't know what to do with it. And I still didn't want to think about it in between. And I really regret that I held out as long as I did for that because I basically suspended you in these states of confusion and pain over these early days of wondering what was going on, why I said the things I did, why I told the story as I, I told. There's another thing that ties into this, another huge important thing that I've come to find when people ask, like, how do you know you're not being codependent? It's a similar process of how do I know I desire sex with you? It's, just, it's The process is checking my motivations. And it's actually not that difficult, I've found, to check my motivations. Forensically, going back years, I can go back almost to my childhood and check my motivations for things because there is this lost emotional imprint. Like I don't necessarily have to remember all the details of a conversation, but if I can place myself there just enough to where I can remember kind of what the place looked like, who I was with, I can kind of remember what I was feeling. And then once I remember what I was feeling, I can fill in the true story of what I was trying to avoid when I was feeling those things and then start to tell the true story. So this reconnection that you've done mm-hmm. between your emotional system and your say, cognitive system, which was broken by chronic trauma, including it was broken by sexual trauma, this disconnection between acts of desire and feelings of desire. You've restitched those together so that you know what it feels like when you're acting 
out honest emotions or when you are acting against your emotions. I had never thought of that phrase, acts of desire versus feelings. I, I love that. That's exactly, that's exactly it, right? So that's what I'm looking for. When I think, when I go back and I think about what was my motivation with R&J, just on general, I'm talking about at this point more uh, big picture scale as opposed to like maybe individual like occurrences of things. Um, my motivation was fear and shame. And that's obvious to me. Like there's not a lot of, it doesn't take me long to figure that out. There was never any point where I can say, oh yeah, there was a period of a year or something, you know, with R where, where I was really starting to feel connected to her. And yeah, it just, it didn't happen. I was always motivated by something like that. And then when I think about us, that was always there. All the way back to the beginning, I was motivated by, by these three things we talked about, these feelings of safety and the, this mutual desire going both directions. Always felt that. And when we're talking about kind of the acts of desire versus the feelings, mm -hmm. acts of desire, divorce from feelings of desire, it sounds like those are the, the acts and the actions that looking back cause the most shame. Yes, when you performed acts of desire and acts of love in violation of what you were feeling. Yes. It's cognitive dissonance, like kind of buried at the deepest level. And, and somewhat of a betrayal of yourself. Yeah. And so having a, a sexual relationship in which you had desire and were acting on that authentically, I think was a large part of the healing. I've certainly had sex without desire can be plenty of reasons for a person to do that mm -hmm. and it was fine you know it wasn't overly traumatic but it doesn't feel good so i think if you did that consistently and if you felt you had to do it i can understand how that would be traumatizing to consistently have sex without desire to do so and then to try to manage the shame that comes out of that of course that's part of my system of behaviors that i did was i i got better and better at emotional avoidance, compartmentalization, all of these tools I used to, tr to cover up that fact, ignore the reality of the situations. A part of the healing now, of course, is trying to clean up a lot of that sexual trauma. Now it's great to, to be able to feel this connection. Now I've got over this hump, whatever it was, uh, this fear of talking about sex. And over the course of this, doing these four episodes, I feel quite a bit better than I did like we talked about with the course of the entire podcast, talking about this stuff out loud, the fact that I didn't have desire, it, yeah, it hurt. It hurt a lot even before I could even fully explain it. It just hurt a lot knowing that I was violating myself like that by doing things I didn't want to do that I didn't desire to do. Saying I love you to someone I didn't love, things like that. It just did not feel good. But it, somehow this thought of thinking as though I wanted to have sex with someone I didn't actually want to have sex with. I didn't know how to explain it, but it felt awful somehow. And so now being able to explain that out loud in a way that actually makes sense to me is huge. It's very healing. So even beyond the feeling desired and safe in a relationship and consistently feeling your own desire and being able to act on that, all of which is, I think, very empowering and healing, mm -hmm. now being able to talk about it. Yeah. And explain it seems to have relieved quite a bit of shame for mm -hmm. you, which I already feel kind of melting away some of this unknown shame that I seem to have been carrying all the way up until we started this series. I don't know. I like it just it was similar, similar things as before we started all of this. It's these a whole bunch of I don't knows. Why do I feel that? I don't know. Why am I afraid of that? I don't know. It's nice to reduce the I don't knows and have more trust in myself. And just for me too, just to add on my own, my own experience at, at the end of this, this conversation. I, it's a very fulfilling sexual relationship for me as well, because of certainly feeling desired by you, 
feels great, but desiring you feels even better. So people who have felt disconnected to that feeling, you know, I encourage them to really figure out and find what gives them pleasure and what motivates them from a desire perspective, because having sex that you desire with someone you desire is really terrific. Well, you mentioned the word pleasure here, and I kind of forgot to mention that because that's the other huge piece in all of this, right? Not just desire, mutual desire and safety. It's the fact that this was a pleasurable experience, has been a pleasurable experience, both physically and emotionally. I feel connected afterwards. I feel satisfied afterwards. I feel satisfied in between. The motivation isn't just desire. It's also pleasure seeking. So this was an experience that in the past consistently caused you pain. And now over the course of a number of years, it's, it has consistently given you pleasure. Yes. So that experience and the consistency of that experience has been very healing. Having sex that you want, having sex that gives you pleasure rather than just focusing on the other person has been a big part of healing that sexual trauma. Yes, absolutely. There's more material, as always, on our Patreon account. If you're interested in writing quite a bit of writing on this topic mm-hmm. to, to prepare for these episodes and, and, and just to do the analysis that, that needs to be done. And that's available on patreon.com, which is, and it's linked in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for this episode and for this uh, little mini series on sex. Mm-hmm.